to treat all this as though it's a pile of antiquarian rubbish and that this whole country was a swamp of darkness and oppression until from nowhere Trudeau Sr. thought up, hey, let's have rights and gave us a charter makes us blind to what the nature of liberty is, what the procedures are, and also the horrendous flaw in our Charter of Rights, which is not the notwithstanding clause. It's section one that yes. says you have these rights only until the court decides you shouldn't. That sort of thing is dangerous. You cannot give tyrants that much space because they will take it. There's no notwithstanding clause. There's no section one in Magna Carta. It just says the king can't do this. He can't do that. He can't do this. That's all she wrote. Hello and welcome to Freedom Feature, and I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have our special guest, Dr. John Robson. Dr. Robson is the executive director of Climate Discussion Nexus. He's a documentary filmmaker, a columnist with the National Post and the Epic Times, and Looney Politics. He's also a professor at Augustine College. He holds a PhD in American history from the University of Texas at Austin. And welcome, Dr. Robson, to our program. Thank you very much. I was wondering if you could just share with our audience a little bit about your background and what public policy issues concern you the most in your writing. Well, in some sense, the answer is all of them, which isn't very helpful. But uh, I originally, um, I became a historian. It's kind of a family tradition because I was very interested in public affairs and, and the way human beings conduct themselves. And I thought that really the only guide we have to the future is the past. Mm. And initially my focus was really on foreign policy. I think I was a hawk before I was much of anything else. And my doctoral dissertations on it, on Richard Nixon's diplomacy. And then you know, I got more and more interested in economics and, and uh, the economics of freedom. And then somewhat later more into the, into the social issues. And again, of course, raised in a very liberal environment where you kind of took all the, the, liberal pieties for granted, but gradually became more and more skeptical of some of the stuff that I'd been taught when I was young. Lately, again, more and more um, the role of ideas and particularly of fundamental ideas about the nature of right and wrong and of the meaning of human existence. It seems to me that if you try and answer particular questions without answering general ones, you get yourself into a lot of trouble. Mm. So I'm much more, I've always been interested in ideas and in this curious phenomenon you know people call it ideology this business where somebody holds on to their own opinion even after they hear yours right but it really is a puzzling thing how it is that intelligent well-meaning people disagree and what it is that drives their disagreements over particular issues and it seems to me that you, you always find yourself going back to the fundamentals the concept of looking back to history to understand the present is something that i think a lot of people have really thrown under the bus in recent times and this in fact is one of the very big tacit disagreements that leads to so much lack of communication on pol policy issues. Mm. Some people think the world is inherently a difficult and dangerous place, and they're interested in how it is that somehow we've salvaged some peace and prosperity from the wreckage. And mm. so they tend to look at the past for lessons, but other people think, no, it's actually quite easy. And what we need is dreams for the future. And I remember going back to my cold warrior days, two bumper stickers that I thought said it all in six words. And people like me had ones that said peace through strength, which was talking about a time honored method going back, you know, the Romans, he was pack and parabellum. Mm. And on the other hand, visualize world peace. 
which discarded all the wreckage of the past because their noble intentions were bound to make everything work without really breaking a sweat. And, you know, we looked at them and thought they were fatuous and they looked at us and thought we were nasty. And then, you know, the conversation proceeded as you'd imagine. But it really seemed to me to encapsulate the fact that so many people don't look at the lessons of the past, a critical one of which is it's not easy. Nothing in life is easy. And all these noble aspirations, if you don't have a really good plan, you're not going to just fall short. You're going to fall into a disaster. You're going to wind up with, you know, again, the Godwin's law, but you're going to wind up with Hitler invading Poland and mm. league with Stalin and thinking to yourself, but I said peace for our time. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I started with foreign policy, but I've realized this applies a lot more broadly. I think that's an extremely important is to be able to connect the dots that run from the various specific areas. As you mentioned, you know, we, we think of the university discussions and so forth, but we, we tend to become experts in a minutia of things rather than stepping back and looking at the big picture and say, why does it work? Why doesn't it work? And, and it seems to me that history is that avenue in which we're able to look back and say, hey, why did things turn out the way they did? And, and what are people like? And again, one of the really big questions, is human nature fairly constant uh, or is it possible for us to remake humanity? If we find that humanity doesn't live up to our elevated standards, mm. can we turn it into something more pleasing to us? And again, there are a lot of people who think that's a pretty straightforward business, uh, whereas a lot of others say, you know, people are intractable. They have free will. They uh, as I said, they persist in believing their opinion, even after you tell them yours and all kinds of things of that sort. And and also, is human nature flawed? You know, is there Immanuel Kant said you know, from the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. And if this is true, then it really affects your your projects in the public sphere with the sort of things you think you can achieve and the sorts of dangers that you think might lurk. Or Solzhenitsyn once said, you know, that it. Uh, the dividing line between good and evil doesn't run across national borders or you know between political ideologies. It runs through every human heart. And I think also that a lot of the people who are making public policy don't really have a sense of their own frailty. And this is extremely dangerous. And I, you know, we live with the consequences of electing people who really think they're just so great that they don't, for instance, need to be subject to checks and balances, that they should be able to invoke the Emergencies Act at will because yeah. they would never, ever do a bad or stupid thing. And you watch them and you wonder where they got this idea. But uh, then you wonder why we would elect them, given that they pretty clearly do have it. Yeah, absolutely. And and it strikes me that the similarities between the human race is is very evident. For example, when we have the utopian ideas of China under Mao and just at a whim, he changes policy on agriculture and then results in this horrific famine in the 50s and 60s. It, it just it just strikes me that without understanding the human nature, the human being we are bound to make all kinds of public policy errors. And without understanding, it's, of course, it's possible to think about things and improve them. And this has been happening since the invention of fire. But at the same time, not to look at the way that people, for instance, in, in China, were raising crops and say to yourself, there's a good chance that there's some solid rules of thumb here, that people have figured out ways not to starve to death, even though conditions are somewhat difficult. And if we just barge in and change everything, the likelihood of us precipitating a disaster is far higher than the likelihood of our 
causing something good to happen. And then, of course, there was enormous enthusiasm for Mao Zedong here in the West. And of course, there were also cautionary voices, including to their credit, the Beatles. But uh, there, there's an enormous susceptibility to this kind of utopian thinking. And again, it, it's very hard to defeat it by saying, look, if you raise the minimum wage, then fast food outlets will get computerized ordering and teenagers will find it hard to get jobs, though that is, of course, true. But you, you need to get much deeper into the metaphysics. And we're now, I think, mm -hmm. in a very, very major public policy battle over whether there's such a thing as truth. And so, again, the particulars tend to get very snarly because we're, we don't really understand that we're arguing about whether everything is just true in your mind or not, whether you can make unhealthy into healthy just by saying, I think it's healthy. You find yourself driven back to the metaphysics. And I do think if we could spend more time when we're arguing with people saying, well, look, I think here are the fundamental assumptions that divide us, then we'd spend less time bickering and calling each other names, which is a unconstructive in terms of policy, but also, I think, harmful to us as individuals. The idea that everybody who disagrees with me is necessarily stupid, evil, or both um, doesn't do me much good, and it doesn't do the nation much good. The problem is that there are intelligent and well-meaning people who have very bad ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's so important for us to understand. I think of the comments that were made just a few months ago by our own prime minister with respect to the Canadian people who did not accept his view of the world as racist, misogynist, and so on. And there seems to be a lack of understanding of what that kind of language will result in. And I think we're only just now beginning to understand what kind of trouble that kind of barrage of insightful language is going to reap. Yes. And the prime minister is incredibly clueless in a great many ways. And one of them is he didn't seem to understand that he was being mean. Mm. He really thought, well, I'm the nice guy. And since they're such appalling villains, I just need to crush their tiny heads and then we'll have a peace, love, and trust will erupt everywhere. And to this day, I don't think he grasps that he was the one being divisive. Mm. And, and this is, again, because of he has this extraordinarily sublime assurance that no matter what he actually does, he's the good guy. Mm. And, and again, you know, he knows his intentions are good, and this frees him up from scrutinizing his actions, uh, or really even his motives. You know, this, those of us who suspect that we're flawed uh, worry a great deal more about whether we're actually as nice or as smart as we like to think we are. And uh, unfortunately, people like the prime minister just don't. And he doesn't have people around him who can say, you know, that was actually kind of a mean thing to say. Maybe you should go out and say something nice to those people, even while making clear that you still don't agree with them. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that's a, an extremely important point. The idea that those who you gather around, i.e. the leader, gathering around him, people of like mind, rather than having someone who's going to have a difference of opinion. And I wonder sometimes, given, for example, and I, I don't want to harp on this one too much, but it strikes me that the current situation we find ourselves in government, where they are dismissing those who, for example, refuse to take their vaccine mandate, are really eliminating, or there's a purge, uh, eliminating those who would stand up against a public policy. In other words, it strikes me that those are the kinds of people who would be the dissenters, but, but we ultimately purged them out of the bureaucracy. And even more so now, we have a more cohesive unit of everyone 
following the piper. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, there's an old line from Samuel Johnson. The more he talked of his honor, the faster we counted our spoons back when spoons were <laughs> valuable objects. And one of the odd things that happens, the more they talk about inclusion, the more they exclude people. But again, it's tempting to say, well, this proves they're hypocrites, but it's not that. It's that they really have this conviction that they have the key to a world in which everyone will feel validated and be filled with self-esteem and will unlock their true potential. And the people standing in the way aren't even ignorant. They're mean-spirited. They really don't want this. They're up to something. I mean, again, you look at what Jagmeet Singh says about, about oil prices, and it's that the liberals and conservatives have rigged it in favor of their buddies, that it's not mm. policy errors here, but deliberate malice. And of course, their patience for malice is somewhat limited. And so because the prime minister thinks that anybody who stands in his way is deliberately causing bad things, he mm. needs to get rid of them so that all the people who want good things can create the good things. This is, of course, a shallow and childish way to think about the world. But Again, you have, sort of have to get back to history, and we're going to talk about Magna yes. Carta, and I'm going to anticipate that because the villain in Magna Carta is Bad King John, and that was, a, you know, was a terrible ruler. In fact, there was a book that I was reading around the time we did the documentary that started out, did he really deserve to be called Bad King John? No, he was much worse than that. But he didn't get up in the morning thinking, how can I be evil today? He got up in the morning thinking, how can I get rid of those idiots who are obstructing my plans to make England a really great place? So the problem with John was that he was filled with the conviction of his own righteousness. And this is what made him so dangerous and why, in fact, it was really necessary to rein him in, in, in a difficult and dangerous, but ultimately magnificent venture. It's a great segue. I often have said that we have our own King John right now that needs to be taken to the Runnymede Meadow in uh, the office of Prime Minister. You've done a lot of work with respect to Magna Carta, and I'm just wondering if you can just share with our audience who, you know, they've heard of the term Magna Carta. They've I, I even got my own copy right here that I wanted to show off to you. Um, hey. There you go. <laughs> and uh, something we, we hear about, we see about uh, in, in the movies and so forth. Uh, many people, uh, many, at least the older movies, uh, would make reference to the Magna Carta. It seemed to be part of the parlance of the day, whereas today we don't hear of it much. But you went on the journey of discovering Magna Carta. But can, can you just explain to our audience what it's all about? Well, Magna Carta is the great charter that was sealed reluctantly by bad King John in 1215. That was a statement of the liberties of the English people. King John was encroaching on their rights and the nation rose up. And of course, I mean, he had people on his side, but fundamentally there was this mass movement led by, not by the barons, though they were important, but by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, to force the king to stop innovating in ways that were harmful. Two years before Magna Carta was signed, he summoned a meeting of, of clerics and, and nobility at Westminster, and he produced the coronation oath of King Henry I back in 1100. He said, we must force John to reissue this Charter of Liberties, and we must add to it. And so they laid out all the most important things. And when you look at Magna Carta, I mean, first of all, it's written in Latin on the hide of a sheep. So you might think to yourself, well, this can't really mean anything. But then you look through it and you see, first of all, it, it has religious freedom. It has in there a guarantee of women's rights. 
Uh, it has in there a guarantee of property rights. It has in there a guarantee of due process. It even has no taxation without representation. And this is really quite extraordinary. Some people might think the Americans came up with that as a novel idea in 1776, but they didn't, and they didn't think they did. There's actually, if you look at the state seal of Massachusetts from the revolution, it's a guy looking like the New England Patriots mascot, but he's got a sword in one hand and a scroll in the other. And if you look closely, the scroll has Magna Charter written on it. Mm. So this is a document in which the the English nation, and again, you, you talk about the barons and clerics, but obviously they had armed supporters, ordinary people who said this king is a tyrant and we will not have that in this country. Uh, who said, we are a free people. We have been a free people from time immemorial, and we will not have a government that takes away our freedom. Mm -hmm. And so this great guarantee was created not by a legislature, because they didn't have legislatures back then, certainly not by the word of the king, because he was a fink, but by we the people. And then it is from Magna Carta, because once you've got a guarantee, you need a way to make sure that it is protected in practice. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's an old English maxim, no right without a remedy which isn't cynical, meaning, ha-ha, now you see it, now you don't. It's that it's no good promising you free speech or whatever, the rights of man and the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution, unless there are practical remedies that ordinary people can access. And so it turned out that one of the things you needed was a legislative assembly whose job was to stop the king from taking away people's rights, taking away their freedom, taking away their stuff, and mistreating and torturing them. I mean, Bad King John liked starving people to death. And this is one of the things you really had to stop him from doing. And so Parliament evolves to uphold the guarantees in Magna Carta. And so does the English common law. I can't, of course, do the whole story here in the interview and invite people to watch the documentary. But one of the really interesting things that John's father, King Henry II, had done was he was in a power struggle with the nobles over the legal system. And, and he cheated and he won because what he did is he gave better justice. He sent his judges out and what they would do is they went around England and when there was a case to be heard, they would assemble a jury not to judge just the facts of the case, but first off to say, well, what is the law? What are the rules you agree to live under as free people? And then how do they apply in this case? And they codified this common law, or as Daniel Hannon has pointed out, this member of the European Parliament, it's called the law of the land. And that phrase doesn't exist outside of the Anglosphere. It's a unique English-speaking world contribution to liberty and human dignity, that these are the rules people consent to be governed by. And so Magna Carta is a document that enshrines rights that already existed, and it does so based on the popular will. So when we could say the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982, and people go around saying, well, we didn't have rights before that. No, it's our you know first written guarantee of rights. This mm. shows how little they understand about where our freedom came from. Time and again, the guarantees of liberty in Magna Carta were challenged, usually by the executive branch, mostly kings, but now, as you've pointed out, by prime ministers. And it was always the one part of the government that is chosen by the people, and that's the legislators, who have stepped up and restrained the rulers by saying you can't do that. And the particular device in Parliament was by not giving them money to carry out their schemes. There's a great line from Jean-Louis de Lome. He was a Swiss exile who came to England and discovered their constitution. And he was astonished by it. In a classic moment, he went and he saw a royal park with a sign saying, this belongs to the king. Trespassers will be prosecuted. 
And he thought, what kind of country is this where the king has to go to court and prove that you did something wrong instead of just swatting off your head? And he was so enthused. He wrote this uh, great book on the Constitution of England. And he said, in some ways, the executive branch is like a mighty ship. It's provisioned, it's armed, it's ready to sail. But at any moment, the legislature can draw off the water and leave it stranded. And this ability that we have to veto government when it does things we shouldn't, it's so important. And if you understand that, then you understand what's wrong with the executive branch taking over the budgeting process from the legislature. For instance, one year Trudeau just decided not to present the budget. This took us back in horrifying ways to bad King John. And people didn't realize it because they thought, oh, we have rights because Trudeau Sr. said we should have rights. You know, he kindly bestowed them on us. But that's the opposite of what really happened at Magna Carta and beyond. We insisted on our rights when the monarch decided to unbestow them. We said, that's not happening. And if you persist in this course, uh, you put yourself in grave peril because we are a free people and we will not be tyrannized. So Magna Carta then is a statement of the rights that already existed, right? And, and that the king was to recognize that, look, you can't overstep yourself here. Yes, that is a critical part of Magna Carta and the fight for freedom going forward, not just the American Revolution, but the Upper and Lower Canada rebellions. We're all about restating traditional rights. Uh, Daniel Hannon, again, we interviewed him for the Magna Carta documentary, and he commented at one point that we tend to assume that anybody in the past whose views resemble our own must have been the progressives. But he said, when you look at the people who forced Magna Carta on bad King John, they were looking backward to the liberties of Anglo-Saxon England. And he says, and the extraordinary thing is they were right. This really was a much freer country and not just for men. People, Oh, yeah, men, sure, rich white men, whatever. Um, but no, women had rights as well. And they were persons under the law. And people say, oh, it's just a deal for the nobles, you know, never mind the serfs. But you look at the reissues of Magna Carta, and it's reissued dozens of times in the next 200 years. And for instance, you know, as Edward Cook will later quote one of these, that these rights are guaranteed to, they list a bunch of important people, and, this is, and all free men of our realm. And the Latin word men there is means humans, not it's homo, not we're. And so they were insisting that we have never been tyrannized by our rulers, and we are not going to let it start. And it was the Norman kings following the conquest who were the innovators, the people who said, my word is law. Richard II at one point said, the law is in my mouth. And that was the end of Richard II as king. Because in England, it doesn't work like that. And then in the, in the countries that were founded by or inspired by England, this tradition that individual human beings have dignity, and this dignity means they may not be mistreated for their own good or in disregard of their good, that it is obligatory for the state to respect them. And then you get, of course, this long and elaborate system of writs, like habeas corpus, mm. because it's one thing to say, well, you can't be tyrannized, but another thing to say, well, if the king should grab you and start doing nasty things to you, then you can, or your representatives can come to court and get an order saying, you've got to show a valid reason you're doing this or you're in trouble. And another critical part of the system, it's very interesting, and it, this took a while to evolve. There's a maxim in English law, the crown can do no wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you grew up even in France, never mind in you know Iran or somewhere, you might think this means the government can do anything it likes. But actually, the maxim means that it is impossible for the monarch to give a binding order that is contrary to the law and the Constitution. So if you carry out an order from the king to kidnap and torture somebody, you are fully accountable and you will be charged with kidnapping and torture. 
I was just following orders is explicitly not a defense in English law and Canadian law and American law. And that is really important. It means you don't have to behead the king. They brought this in really after they had to have the English Civil War because this was a very nasty way of settling a problem. Um, mm. So they, they kind of put in a circuit breaker here, but it means that everyone is accountable for their own actions and they can't plead state necessity. Again, an English court ruling, our law knows nothing of state necessity. The government is bound to respect the liberties of its citizens everywhere and at all times. And that is, it's a magnificent achievement of which I think we now think too little. But if you look back even to our confederation debates and you see what the argument is between people who want confederation and people who don't, it's odd to read it today because you have people saying, preserve your British liberties, confederate. And other people standing up and saying, no, preserve your British liberties, don't confederate. But nobody's going around saying, hey, we're the big government socialists, preserve state power, confederate or don't. The argument is very much conducted against the background of Magna Carta and an appreciation of this tradition of liberty as the core of the Canadian identity. Wilfrid Laurier at one point said, Canada is free and freedom is its nationality. And that mm. to me is an inspiring statement and one that, again, we should remember that this is what made Canada a place that is prosperous, that is open, that has been a bulwark of liberty in world wars, in the Cold War, and so on. And mm -hmm. it's why Canada attracts immigrants from all around the world, because this is a place where you can come and have dignity and room to grow and live out your dreams. And to treat all this as though it's a pile of antiquarian rubbish, and that this whole country was a swamp of darkness and oppression until from nowhere Trudeau Sr. thought up, hey, let's have rights and gave us a charter yeah. uh, is, makes us blind to what the nature of liberty is, what the procedures are, and also the horrendous flaw in our Charter of Rights, which is not the notwithstanding clause. It's section one that yes. says you have these rights only until the court decides you shouldn't. That sort of thing is dangerous. You cannot give tyrants that much space because they will take it. And again, if you go back into the debates over this, the second big sort of surge of tyranny under the Stuarts, and there was a, a petition of right was being drafted in Parliament to tell the king he had to respect Magna Carta, he had to respect the laws about taxation without representation, and so on and so forth. And the House of Lords was arguing that there ought to be some leeway, that it was a kind of royal prerogative. And Edward Cook stood up in the House of Commons and he said, there's no such thing as royal prerogative. There's only the rule of law. Magna Carta is such a fellow as he will have no sovereign. So this is 400 years after Magna Carta. This takes place in the 1620s, halfway between Magna Carta and today. And one of the greatest jurists and greatest heroes of the whole story of freedom stands up in Parliament and defies the king and says, I take my stand on Magna Carta. And they, his view prevailed, though unfortunately it took a very bloody civil war. People mm -hmm. don't actually realize the English Civil War killed more people per capita in that country than World War I did. Mm -hmm. It was a ferocious and devastating affair, but it ended with the glorious revolution and the understanding of the English Bill of Rights that the people's liberties may not be infringed. And again, if you look at the English Bill of Rights and you see, you know, no taxation without representation, no disarming the citizens, that's one that surprises people enormously and maybe think the Americans invented it. That's in the English Bill of Rights. No quartering of soldiers, all kinds of devices of tyranny. And the thing about quartering of soldiers, what people don't often understand is, and I only learned this fairly recently, that in mm -hmm. France, they had proclaimed religious toleration. 
under the Edict of Nantes, but only until there was uniformity of opinion in the kingdom. And so what Louis XIV started doing is he would send his dragoons, these violent drunken soldiers, and he'd just billet them on Protestant families where they would smash stuff up, drink the liquor, and uh, molest the daughters until such time as the family said they were Catholic. And then the dragoons would move on to the next Protestant family. And finally, Louis said, okay, well, there are no more Protestants, so I guess we can revoke the Edict of Nantes and just have Catholic harmony because I'm the wise and great Louis. Uh, Sun King. And so people in England saw this happen. And, and then in America later and said, this is a real danger to us. And we're going to put it into the English Bill of Rights and the American one that the state can't just invade your house. A man's home is his castle. All of these things were established in forced legal doctrine hundreds of years ago. And they all go back to Magna Carta. And Magna Carta goes back to the liberties of Anglo-Saxon England. So this is where we got our freedom. And if we throw it away out of ignorance or contempt, nobody has ever found another way to do it. And mm. it would be an extremely reckless thing to discard this heritage instead of saying to ourselves, we are so lucky that we got this and we must hold the torch high. We must preserve it. We must understand it. I mean, if I had my way, every time some new Canadian takes the oath of citizenship, we would then hand them a copy of Magna Carta and we would say, congratulations, now it's yours, but help us preserve it because you and your children and your grandchildren are going to need this and on down through the centuries. It struck me as you were pointing all of this out with respect to Magna Carta because it has a precedence before. And it's that precedence that I'm just wondering if you know the answer. Like It, it strikes me, I'm wondering if it's a, um, a natural rights, religious type understanding of uh, one's human dignity. Like, I'm just trying to look back into the pre-Magna Charter timeframe. What was the context that allowed England in particular, what we now call the British Isles, that would allow the idea that the king is also going to be subject to the law of the land? Ah, the fundamentals. Yes, indeed. And it, it is an extraordinary story. In the documentary, I call it a miracle. And I think it is a miracle. There is an evolution here going back thousands of years. I mean, you start obviously with the Judeo-Christian understanding mm -hmm. that man is made in the image of God. And so you first you have Athens meets Jerusalem and Rome, right? You get you get the religious tradition coming out of Israel and the philosophic tradition coming out of Greece that lead to Christian theology. But there is this additional ingredient of what Tacitus talks about, the Germanic tribes and their self-rule that comes to England in the course of these, frankly, horrifying barbarian invasions. You know, the Angles, Saxons, and the Utes. The Utes don't get no respect, but um, who, who come over and destroy the remnants of Roman Britain, including its Christianity, with their terrible pagan gods and their bloody rituals and their fire and their axes and swords. But then they're evangelized. And, and this to me, again, it's one of these things that people who think the future is going to be so great and the past is terrible. Can you imagine being a monk and deciding that the best thing you could do now is get in a leaky boat, sail across the English Channel and confront these feasting, drunken, violent barbarians with a story that a dead Jewish carpenter was God? Right? Like you, you don't try and buy life insurance before setting out on that venture. They just laugh you out of the office. But they did it. They successfully evangelized. And as soon as they did this, the Saxon kings and the Angles, among other things, started writing down laws, not making them up holus bolus like the Code of Justinian, but writing down the laws of the community. And you start to get these law codes that say that the people have rights. And you get, you get Alfred the Great of Wessex and 
one of his boasts was that he didn't make a lot of laws because he didn't think that he was better than his people. Alfred, there's another barbarian invasion, the, the Vikings and so forth in the 9th and 10th centuries threatened to destroy the now Christianized Anglo-Saxon England. And uh, Alfred is, is right at back against the wall, driven into the marsh at Athelney and so on. And you get the story of Alfred and the cakes, which again, is it's worth telling because the stories that Alfred was in disguise, pretending to be a poor beggar, and he goes up to a a hat and knocks on the door and asks if he can come in and warm himself. And the woman's looking at him like, oh, this vagabond doesn't look too great. But she thinks, well, hospitality is a Christian duty. So she lets him in and she says, okay, sit by the fire, warm yourself up, but just watch the little loaves, the cakes I've got baking because I've got to go out and glean. And instead he's cleaning his sword and thinking how to rally his thanes and so forth. And uh, next thing he knows, the hut's full of smoke and the woman's in the door screaming at him, oh, you lay about your dirty muck. You know, you're all I asked you to do was watch it. Now the... And the punchline is that Alfred doesn't say, oh, on your knees, woman, I am the king, or knock her head off or something. He apologizes. And this is a story that was told at dinner tables in the English-speaking world for over a thousand years, that the monarch in the English system is humble and serves the people. And this story may be apocryphal, but the real Alfred did rally his men. He did connect it with Mercia. He beat the Danes, retook London, forced their king to convert to Christianity. Then he rebuilt the English Navy to try and stop the invasions. Then, as an adult, he taught himself Latin so that he could translate important books into Anglo-Saxon and re revive learning in his kingdom. And you look at the great monuments to Alfred, including one that was erected on the thousandth anniversary of his death, and it was a story even in, across the Atlantic. And in one of them, you get him with an axe and a scroll, but the axe is at rest. And the other one, you get him with his sword, but inverted and held up as a cross, um, because he was a man noted as for his piety, as well as for his prowess and for his improbable learning. Mm. And this is a roundabout way of saying yes. And then you get to Magna Carta. It is an attempt to insist that man being made in the image of God has inherent rights and a dignity that must not be infringed. And again, the, the moving figure for Magna Carta is Stephen Langton. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury, Catholic, of course, because there's no Anglican church yet. Right. And Langton, he's a fascinating figure because when he was made Archbishop, King John refused to acknowledge him because he wanted to appoint the Archbishop. And so Langton is in exile and he is pushing against the king. And finally, John is excommunicated. And the Pope tells him that the King of France, that the throne's vacant and if his son wants to get it, he can. So then John suddenly says, oh, that's Stephen Langton. Sure, I didn't. I thought it was somebody else. So he, he comes in and Langton absolves John, provided that he respect the liberties of his citizens. Well, John does this. You get Magna Carta. Then John, of course, is lying. And he then goes to the Pope and says, hey, how'd you like to have England as a fief in return for nulling Magna Carta? So the Pope does. And Langton refuses to read the excommunication aloud. First, he defies the king on behalf of the pope. Then he defies the pope on behalf of Magna Carta and the barons, and he's forced back into exile. But he never wavers in his belief that individual people have a dignity that must be respected. And he rallies the community around this noble ideal, not some crass self-interest, not some deal among the barons, not just the rich carving up the kingdom. It's something far more profound. And in fact, Magna Carta, the first thing it guarantees is religious liberty. Mm. And for quite some time, it is read aloud in all the cathedrals of England twice a year. And it's read aloud by the monks translating on the fly and probably making a hash of it. But uh, because everybody, even the illiterate, can know what their rights are. 
This isn't something that barons keep sealed away in their castles. It is read aloud twice a year in all the cathedrals of England. Again, it is very difficult. You know, if you look at people who try to build up systems of rights, if they don't base them on kind of God-given dignity, it always ends up failing miserably. And again, another of the critical fundamentals, and this is, pertains to Magna Carta as a legal document as well. Do we make moral law? Do we decide what's good and then it is? Or mm. do we discover it and obey it or discover it and fail to obey it or fail to discover it? But it's out there no matter what we say or do. And Magna Carta is built on that notion that there is such a thing as right and wrong, that they come from a higher authority and that it is our job to discover them, apply them prudently, but we cannot for ourselves decide what is good and what is not. And in fact, what has happened to us, I think, under the charter, and it's part of a, a longer intellectual development, is we've discarded mm -hmm. the idea of natural law for utilitarianism, which mm -hmm. came in sounding both innocent and kind of desirable, the greatest good for the greatest number. But what utilitarianism says is if a whole bunch of people will benefit from violating one of your natural rights, we can do it. And so, you know, if your free speech might cause a ruckus, then we sacrifice it for the good of the community. And this principle of taking to extremes, you mean you could, and I, I admit this is an extreme, but if you said, well, you know, enslaving 10% of the populace would sure benefit the other 90%, I think we'll go with it. Mm. Um, there's no real utilitarian argument against that other than, oh, no, the slaves are so miserable that when you add up the utils on both sides, you, you get a, a negative sum. But under natural law, we just say, well, you can't do this. You know, there's no, there's no notwithstanding clause. There's no section one in Magna Carta. It just says the king can't do this. He can't do that. He can't do this. That's all she wrote. I've noticed there's, um, what would I call it, a um, arrogance, I guess, of sorts in the judiciary, in the legal profession itself, which fails to appreciate this much larger and deeper understanding of where our rights come from. And I, I think of an interesting exchange that happened a number of years ago at the Supreme Court of Canada. And I believe it was Justice Deschamps from Quebec and Justice Fish. And it, it had to do with the concept of witnesses to a, a capital crime. And Fish makes reference to the book of one of the mosaic books with respect to this. The other justice took offense to it and said she felt it necessary to do a separate opinion on just this issue that Justice Fish made reference to a biblical example and saying that this is unacceptable in the modern age. And as I was looking at that, it, it just struck me that when we fail to understand where we've come from, even our Judeo-Christian heritage, our literature that undergirds a lot of our thoughts and thinking, it seems to me we lose a lot and we lose the ability to be able to reference things. It, it's almost like we're trying to, to create everything all new again. But to do that, we're going to end up in a much worse place because we have got this legacy of freedom that has come from our forebears. And if we don't understand it, then we're going to end up making mistakes that our forebears made and we haven't learned. Oh, I think that's very true. Actually, you remind me of somebody criticizing a modern translation of the Bible, saying the prose was so awful that he wanted to rend his garments, but all he could do was tear his clothes. Um, <laughs> which is also interesting because it, see, in, in Jewish culture at the time of Christ, rending your garments wasn't just showing that you were overwrought. It was a very specific statement 
I have just heard blasphemy. And this helps you to understand the text in the Bible if you're interested. But the more general thought, well, it has no place in the modern world, right? We're so much better morally and intellectually and even, you know, linguistically than those people. I'd like to see anybody who takes that view produce a single paragraph that can match the majesty of the King James Version. Again, you look at the concluding part of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and he calls upon this language, and the justice rolls down like the waters and so on. But the words and the ideas are inextricably combined. The the greatness can't be be separated out. And there's a line from G.K. Chesterton where he talks about a lot of people like the future because it's a soft job. If you look at the past, you're confronted with real deeds you can't emulate and real demanding doctrines you can't live up to. But in the future, wow, whatever you've got might just turn out to be the best thing ever. And so again, if you look at somebody like Stephen Langton, and by the way, he's the guy who divided the Bible into the verses that we use today, right? He, right. he did have a day job as a churchman. Or Edward Cook. There's a classic story about Cook. At various times, he was Solicitor General, he was Attorney General, he was Speaker of the House of Commons under Elizabeth, and then under King James, he was Chief Justice of the Civil Court, then the Criminal Court, then he was a political prisoner. Mm-hmm. But at one point, he would issue these rulings. There were ecclesiastical courts in England that the King controlled, and they kept taking over cases from the civil courts. And Cook kept issuing prohibitions saying you can't do this unless it's a purely religious case. And finally, he was summoned before the king to defend it because James was an intellectual and he liked arguing with people. Mm-hmm. And they were having it, going at it hammer and tongs. And finally, James said, as king, I will always protect the law. And Cook said, no, it's the law that protects the king. And James had a fit. Treason, he screamed. And it was so bad that Cook and his supporters had to grovel and beg for his life. And finally, the king magnanimously granted it. And, you know, he went off hunting, which he quite enjoyed. And the (laughs) next day, Cook went back to his court and issued another writ forbidding an ecclesiastical court from taking over a case. And this kind of courage... Or another, and it's an improbable story because the guy was regarded as a hack and a spineless character. But the Speaker of the House of Commons in 1642, William Lenthal, the king invades the chamber with a gang of armed men, drags the speaker out of his chair, sits it himself and says, I demand to know where my five leading parliamentary opponents are. And Lenthal responds, if it please your majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place, except as the house directs me whose servant I am. And I would like to see one of these Supreme Court justices stand up to James I like that. Or one of these politicians face down Charles and his armed men with a line of that magnificence. Before they say we're so much better than our ancestors, before they discard that heritage, because now we really understand social justice and we are warriors. Fui, we walk in the footsteps of giants and it is inspiring, but it's also humbling because you say to yourself, I'm not saying I would have done this. I just said, oh yeah, you know, James, you're the best. Something mm. like that, right? I might well have crumbled. I can't know. I've stood up to Charles. And this, by the way, is again, why the throne speech, they come to the House of Commons and the door is slammed in the face of the Black Rod. And then they go to the Senate chamber. It is because of Charles invading the British Parliament in 1642 that no servant of the executive can set foot in the people's chamber. And so this is another important ritual to remind us of what it is that protects us from tyranny. And when we start saying, oh, that's ridiculous. Why do we have an usher of the Black Rod? This is all a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Let's, you know, get rid of the monarchy and elect Mm -hmm. Justin Trudeau as president and 
supreme ruler for life or something like that. People are, as you say, they're discarding an enormously important mechanism of liberty that's been built up over centuries by trial and error. I mean, again, you look at how parliament takes over money bills. It's kind of a threefold process whereby they, first of all, tell the king that he's got to answer their petitions before they give him any money, and then that he can't edit the bills after they leave, and also that the Commons has precedence over the Lords, right? It's in 1407 that the House of Commons asserts primacy on money bills over the Lords on the grounds that they represent the people who pay for it. And that's why in the American Constitution, money bills originate in the lower house and in our Constitution. It goes back to the reign of Henry IV. And again, all this stuff was built up at great cost in blood and treasure. The, the people who faced off against the king in the Civil War, the people who staged the Glorious Revolution, the people who fought. There's a great movie, I think it's called Ironclad, about the defense of Rochester Castle against King John after he seals Magna Carta and then goes back on his word. Rochester mm. Castle controls access to Southeast England. The way you would take a medieval castle, a lot of people know that the reason for the moat isn't because they can't swim. If they're tunneling under, it'll drain into the tunnels and warn you that something's up. So John and his men tunnel under Rochester Castle, and they they shore it up with timbers, and then they grease it up with pig fat. John sends to his justiciar for 40 pigs of the sort least fit for eating. And then you set the, the lard on fire, it burns out the timbers, half the cat keep collapses. But the defenders hold out in the other half. And John says he's going to build a gallows to hang them and a monument to the pigs. But somebody points out that hanging the losers might set a precedent he would one day regret, so he doesn't. But again, these people who stand up to the king at Rochester Castle, despite all of this, they have performed great deeds. It's a story that should inspire everybody, right? I don't care where your ancestors were at the time of Runnymede or, you know, it doesn't matter to me what you look like or whether you, you know, arrived in Canada last week. If you chose this country, then Magna Carta is yours. And this Mm -hmm. story ought to send a shiver up your spine when you hear of this kind of language. One more example from Joseph House out in Nova Scotia. He was one of the fathers of Confederation there. But before that, he was a newspaper publisher. He was tried for libel because he was forever calling the administration corrupt and incompetent. And in under British law at the time, truth wasn't a defense. If he mm. said it and it damaged them, he was going to be convicted. So he's on trial. And he says to the jury, will you permit the sacred fire of liberty that was brought by your ancestors to be trampled out? here in the new world. And the jury said no, and they acquitted him and annulled the law. And you think about that. Imagine somebody today standing up and saying, will you permit the sacred fire of liberty brought from Britain to be trampled out? You wouldn't, you'd be lucky to get ridiculed by a Globe and Mail columnist. But this is what made this country free. And we shouldn't be embarrassed to be thrilled by it. We Mm. shouldn't feel weak or silly if it brings a tear to our eyes to contemplate the moral and physical courage that made us free people. And again, to to respect the, the religious heritage, the metaphysical understanding of human beings, if we are nothing but ants, if we are just the blind products of biological chance, then those of us who are unfit might as well get the chop, right? That's how nature works. And that's nature's law. (laughs) Exactly. We have built a civilization that wasn't like that because we didn't think that way. And so, again, this takes us back to where we started. We must understand the past. We must appreciate what was done, how it was done, and why it was done, and see how much we owe to this extraordinary, implausible, incredible story. 
As I've mm. said about World War II, if it didn't happen and you wrote your magnum opus, your Tolkien-like trilogy and sent it to the publisher, they'd send it back with an irate note saying, this is too over the top. You've got this Hitler guy's too ridiculous. you got to tone him down. The, the victory at Dunkirk, you got to give them more ships or that can't happen, right? The Battle of the Atlantic, same thing. You know, El Alamein, that's over the top. Uh, but it really did happen. And Magna Carta really did happen. And it really survived. In so many countries, you get some great declaration of liberty and then it gets quashed, right? Including in Russia, where they, mm -hmm. the czars kick out the Mongols and immediately wipe out the independence of the city-states and the popular assemblies. In the English-speaking world, and there alone, it worked. And it created an example that other parts of the world have managed to adopt with some degree of success. I think it embarrassed the French into governing themselves better because they couldn't stand the laughter from across the channel. It is an amazing story. And, you know, the biblical injunction to the Israelites to tell the story of your people at the dinner table. The yeah. other story that I'll conclude with, because I know we're short of time, you often get this thing in the newspapers, oh, he thinks he can stop the this or that. He's like Canute. But the real story of Canute, and he was a Danish interloper, so it's a, a bit of an awkward part of Anglo-Saxon history, but he, all his courtiers were saying, you're so great, you're the favorite of God, you're the best, you're this and that, you can even command the waves. And Canute says, okay, well, since we like evidence-based decision-making, let's go see, carry my chair down at low tide, and he sat there, and the water came in, and he said, I'm Canute the Great, stop, and of course, it poured into his boots, and he stood up with his squelching feet, and he turned to his courtiers, and he said, listen, you idiots, I'm the king, I get flattery morning, noon, and night for free, I don't need more of it, I need you to tell me what I'm doing wrong, I need to tell you my limits, because how else can I govern these people properly? And another thing, the only one who rules the waves is God Almighty. And this was the story that people remembered for a thousand years about a ruler who was both humble and pious. And if we had that model today, we would not put up with the stuff that we're putting up with. If we understood that the job of legislators is to control the executive, we wouldn't play this silly game of piling up red, blue, and orange tiles to get to executive power and rule unchecked for four years at a time. We would mm. not let the government try to make us happy, healthy, and wise. We'd have a completely different and much better understanding Understanding. And I don't just mean metaphysically better. I mean, it would work better because it's metaphysically sound. So everybody should watch the Magna Carta documentary and they should say, that's the one for me. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll certainly have that link in our uh, write-up of our talk here today in our conversation. This is absolutely fascinating. I, I can uh, listen to you all day. And I want to ask you just to unpack the concept of how the Magna Carta affects us today. You've expressed it as, as, as you just did. But it seems that unless we get to the fundamentals, we can't understand Magna Carta, but nor can we understand the present. You talk about how people thought. Let's, I, just for a few more minutes, how is it that the thinking today, it seems to me, is going to limit liberty, whereas the thinking in the past that gave us the Magna Carta and all the all of the freedoms that we have received from our British heritage. Yes, British heritage. What's the difference here between the two? Well, and I'm going to start with a quotation. I was just poking around to find this. It's from a, a historian of a previous generation that says, Today, we are perhaps more acutely aware of the continuity of history. We value the Middle Ages as providing not so much the foundation as the pattern of our civilization. We appreciate more the underlying identity of our 20th century way of life with that of our medieval predecessors. We have to study the Middle Ages not merely as a foundation, but for their own sake. They were a period when our own constitutional ideals and traditions, which still continue and without which our civilization cannot live, 
were simply and vigorously expressed. And funnily enough, that's my own grandfather. I knew him as a kindly Grandpa Bertie. I only found out later that after he died and I read his books and I thought, whoa, you're the man, uh, Bertie <laughs> Wilkinson. But w- what we need to understand, first of all, Magna Carta enshrined our traditional rights. And then Parliament evolved as the mechanism to make sure that those rights that were written on paper, well, in fact, on vellum, um, operated in practice. And Parliament developed its procedures. The Commons starts to sit separately. They elect their own speaker. And you, the, why is the guy who doesn't talk the speaker? Because he controls the agenda and counts the votes. He doesn't let the king count the votes. Then you get the rules about money bills, about the king having to to not be able to spend money that Parliament hasn't voted. You get attacks on Parliament. First, the Stuarts try and overwhelm it by force and fail. And this is a little more particularly relevant. Under the Hanoverse, the Georges, uh, you know, this poem, George I as vile was reckoned, but viler still was George II. And what mortal ever heard any good of George III? When George IV from Earth descended, God be praised that Georges ended. (laughs) But the Hanovers, and this is what triggers the American Revolution, Instead of trying to crush Parliament, they try to seduce it. They offer perks, money, privilege, prestige, whatever it takes to turn the Parliament into a tame appendage of the executive that passes all its bills without question and doesn't cause awkwardness and trouble. And it nearly works. If it weren't for the American Revolution, maybe it would have. But the American Revolution, at the height of the fighting, a resolution is passed in the British House of Commons that basically says, yeah, you're right, we messed up. It says the power of the crown has increased, is increasing, and should decrease. And then on the 200th anniversary of the revolution, the British Parliament presented the American Congress with a gift. It is a gold replica Magna Carta. And what it said was, in 1776, you were the ones upholding our liberty, and we were the ones who had, in fact, drifted into executive tyranny. And thank heavens you saved us. You didn't just save yourselves, but in the process you saved us and the British write their system. And why this matters so much today is that the legislature has ceased to be a check on the executive. It has become this tame appendage. Party leaders control nomination papers. They whip legislators. Nobody ever dissents. And if they do, they get kicked out of the caucus and people think good riddance to them. They don't say, good heavens, we've got incipient tyranny on our hands. Mm -hmm. And I've done a few charts of this. When you look at what proportion of a governing caucus is in cabinet with the extra money that it brings? I mean, just the, the emoluments, and it's done in plain sight. Things like parliamentary secretaries. What's a parliamentary secretary? Well, it brings a car and dozens of thousands of dollars extra a year and allowances, right? It pays you to be supine and promises you that one day you might even be a minister and get 30 or 40 grand extra a year. And we have these huge bloated cabinets because the executive is absorbing the legislature. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at the history of liberty and you see the danger of that, you see that we are not meant to be electing a man on horseback every four years or a woman, because these are modern times. We are meant to be the only people we elect. And people say Trudeau won the election. Well, no. Trudeau was elected as MP. He won that election. But he's only prime minister because a majority of legislators will pass his key bills. And the Mm -hmm. minute they don't, he's out. But we don't think of this that way anymore. We don't think what checks the judiciary. We don't elect them. But and and I I wrote about this recently. Parliament should revive the power of impeachment. Some judge makes a particularly silly ruling. They should be impeached or a particularly dangerous ruling. And then we'd say, don't forget, checks and balances apply to all three branches. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. So if we understand what Magna Carta guaranteed and then how our system evolved to make sure those guarantees were real, 
I mean, another trivial thing in Magna Carta, or so you might think, it says royal courts will not follow the king around, but will be held in the normal places. And that matters because the kings of England at that point were also kings of much of France. They were on the road constantly. They had horses. You didn't. If you had to go to London or, you know, somewhere in southern France, you know, Avignon, because the king was there, the ordinary person could never get justice. But no, the court is where you need it to be when you need it to be there so that you, the ordinary person, can enforce your rights even against the king. And, you know, that that line about the man's home is his castle, you know, and the may, roof may shake and the walls may tremble and the rain and the wind may enter, but the king of England cannot enter. All of this depends upon the one part of government that we do elect, the legislature, being the watchdog on the parts that we don't, on the unelected bureaucracy, on the executive branch, the cabinet and the ministers, and on the judiciary. And of course, the judiciary has to check the legislature and strike down laws that are appalling. We need checks and balances in every direction because men are not angels. Mm -hmm. But checks and balances can work because we're not devils. Uh, but if you look back and understand how the mechanism evolved, you see that what the legislature has become, this colorful, tame appendage of the executive, is exactly the danger that was faced in the 18th century when it turned out that the 17th century, an earlier danger of simple military force crushing the legislature, was not going to operate. And I will add one more interesting thing about British history. You notice the British have a royal navy, and they've got a royal air force, but they don't have a royal army because it would be too dangerous to have the armed people in the state answerable to the king rather than to the populace. And so Parliament passes a mutiny act every year. That means soldiers must obey orders or face harsh penalties, but it has a time limited. So if Parliament isn't summoned, the mutiny act lapses and the army owes no duty of obedience. And these are all these mechanisms that people have built mm. in. They're very clever and they have stood the test of time in very important ways. And again, you look at the, what, what do we call them? The police. But what's the French word for them? Gendarme. <laughs> The guys with weapons, because the French didn't understand that the citizens had the right to defend their liberties. They don't have a Bill of Rights that states that you have the right to bear arms, but the English do. And this is all part of this deep understanding that governments tend to overreach, not, not so much from conscious malice as from arrogance. And that we must find ways to check the arrogance of rulers because it's not safe to trust them to check their own. And this, again, you see this, I mean, this is the superficial pattern. Obviously, we're ruled by very arrogant people. But the reason they get away with what they get away with is that we have forgotten how the checks and balances are meant to work. Or we say, oh, checks and balances, that's American. No separation of powers, that's American. Well, read our Constitution. It's yeah, all right out there. I remember one pundit was complaining about something that happened in Canada. Again, one of these you know, blue tech columns said, well, that's the sort of thing you'd expect in the United States where God's in the Constitution, not here. And this was an amazing <laughs> statement because God is in our Constitution, front and center. There he is. God is not in the American Constitution. But this person hadn't bothered to read either document. Yeah. Um, and so they certainly hadn't read Magna Carta. But it's amazing when you do read Magna Carta and you see it has got there's great stuff in it. Like, there's a long list of people that have to leave England, these evil supporters of King John. And it'd be, you know, be quite something to have been singled out in Magna Carta that you're getting the boot. Um, yeah. And there's also that the king can raise money to marry his eldest daughter once. And the reason why is, you know, he'd have married her 14 times if he could have wrung money out of people every time. They knew who they were dealing with. And they <laughs> dotted the I's and crossed the T's to make sure John couldn't get away with this stuff because they were both high-minded and worldly. And I think in some ways we're neither. And we've because we've, we've lost sight of the fundamentals. And once you do that, the practical stuff just disintegrates on you. We 
have experienced the invocation of the Emergencies Act by an individual who certainly, and as we are you know, listening to the testimony now, had no right to do so. What's very sad is the fact that we have a situation where there are no checks and balances, which you aptly pointed out. And it's something that I think going forward, we've got to have more discussions about how we are able to reinstitute those checks and balances in our own country. Because if we don't get a handle on it, we are definitely facing a crisis or will face an, an even greater crisis than what we've experienced just in the last few months. No, I think that's absolutely true. I actually followed up the Magna Carta documentary with one called True, Strong, and Free about fixing our constitution, which includes a draft constitution you can still download that I would like to submit to a referendum that creates a real charter of rights that doesn't have loopholes. But mm-hmm. another thing, there's a line from the impossibly named Judge Learned Hand in the United States about how liberty lies in the hearts of men and women, and if it dies there, no constitution can save it. And when you look at the Emergencies Act and the hearings that Parliament is now holding, Mm-hmm. It seems quite clear that ministers, when they claimed law enforcement asked for it, were lying. Yes. Not that this would necessarily be a valid excuse, even if they had, right? The executive branch can't tell the executive branch to crush liberty and say that made it all right. You yeah. know, it's just following orders coming from below. But if it were the Tories that had done it, and the Liberals were in opposition, they would be beseeching Tory members to put the rights of Parliament ahead of partisanship. And one of my rules that I think could fix things in a kind of moral sense, when you're looking at politics, do not excuse behavior on your side, the guys in the blue ties or the red or the orange, as you prefer, and the shawls, that you would condemn if the other side did it. So it's up to the Liberal members. I don't understand why Liberal MPs are not proud to be parliamentarians. Do not understand that they walk in these worn, hallowed footsteps, including those of William Lenthal, Edward Cook, and such people. They should say, I don't care that Trudeau is on our team, uh, Team Mm. Justin. This is an outrageous violation of the liberties of Canadians and the rights of Parliament, and I will get to the bottom of this. The idea that, well, you can't see the cabinet documents and so on. This is a crisis in our constitutional life, and Parliament has the absolute unquestioned right. If Another James I story. He came down from Scotland where the Parliament was tame, and when he got to England, somehow he'd never figured out that their Parliament was different, and it really annoyed him. And at one point, he lectured them and said, you may not discuss this and that. You may not discuss my foreign policy. So Parliament immediately convened a debate on his foreign policy and how stupid it was. And James came down in person. This is pre-Lenthal. And he seized the journal and of their debates and tore out the page in which those discussions were written down. And that page is still on display in Westminster because for some reason he didn't burn it. I guess he kept it as a trophy. But (laughs) the spirit of parliament where the king told them, you can't debate my foreign policy, and they immediately tore it to shreds. Um, That's what we need today. Justin Trudeau says, you can't discuss my Emergencies Act policy. Parliamentarians ought as one to rise up and say, we are going to give you the business over this. And you can't stop us. And unless and until they do that, and unless and until we insist that they do that, it doesn't matter all that much what's written on paper. So again, Mm -hmm. liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. And so that's why we must tell the story at our dinner tables. Make sure. And again, I want to emphasize this isn't just for people whose ancestors have been here for hundreds of years, which mine haven't. It's for everybody, even if you got here last week. Tell your children the real story of Alfred and the Cakes. Tell them the real story of Canute. 
make sure they know the name of Stephen Langton and that of Edward Cook and understand why this was the place. They made about halfway around the world and nobody told them about our winter and they thought they should come to Canada. But what drew them to Canada, the things they said, hey, that sounds like the kind of place where I should be, are the result of the heroism and the clarity of the people who made Magna Carta and the people who preserved those liberties through the whole evolving story of Parliament and the Bill of Rights and the spreading to other countries and this fundamental understanding that humans are flawed, but they are made in the image of God and they have the right to be protected from the presumption of their betters. And it takes certain kinds of mechanisms to protect them effectively. And if we can get that back, then we can fix the constitution. There hasn't been a huge groundswell of support for the referendum on my draft constitution yet, but (laughs) uh, I'm confident that one day there will be because this is a great country whose heritage is in danger. And every time that's happened yes. in the past, as Winston Churchill said uh, late in his life, I think he was, um, he might have been in Australia, but he says, you know, when the state gets swollen and arrogant, appeal has been made time and again to Magna Carta and never yet without success. Mm. And it's time for another appeal to Magna Carta and the spirit of liberty that is the birthright of every Canadian regardless of where they were actually physically born. Well, Dr. Robson, I want to thank you so very much for that uh, wonderful presentation here today. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. I've, I've learned so much myself, and I'm sure that you, our listeners, have learned as well. And we thank you so much for joining us here on Freedom Feature, where we offer open, honest, and transparent dialogue. It has been a great pleasure. And thank you for joining us. And we really appreciate the opportunity to be able to come and to share open, honest, and transparent dialogue on issues that matter. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca